So um, we're happy to have this opportunity to meet you all. And this is your opportunity to ask questions. If you have any questions. <laughs> I was speaking to Richard the other day, and he mentioned the meditation experience you had in Antarctica. A meditation experience you had in Antarctica, where it, you were surrounded by white, and and uh, you went to like a place that was very bright and, and white. He mentioned something. And I was wondering if you can uh, expand on that a little. It sounded interesting. Or do you remember that? Me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it wasn't Antarctica, it was the Arctic. The Arctic. And I had uh, he Richard Smith invited me to visit the North Pole after a retreat at Spirit Rock. I gave a Sandy retreat at Spirit Rock. And during that retreat, I mentioned that when I went to live in the UK, in England, I uh, had this strange kind of nimitta or sign of uh, being at the North Pole. <coughs> and uh, and it was all very, everything was white and there was, I was naked out on the snow and there were wolves in the background howling and everything was, was uh, you know, rather frightening in, in anything that you can think of being more horrible than being naked alone out in the snow at the North Pole with wolves and howling wind. <laughs> But the actual nimitta was quite peaceful. You know, I felt peaceful. I didn't feel fear. And so I mentioned this. And uh, after the 10-day re retreat at Spirit Rock was over, uh, he invited me and Rajan Amro to visit the North Pole. <laughs> So I never expected anything like that, <clears throat> but um, but it was strange living in England. I I began to even in the city of London. I was I, we were in London for two years, and and I uh, experienced this incredible s sound of silence. What I call sound of silence, this kind of empty uh, sense of uh, it's very peaceful, and it surprised me because you know you think of a city like London and Vihara uh, was on a very busy street, but uh, anyway, they, Richard took Ajahn Amro and Ajahn. Yanarato, Japanese monk, and myself to Spalbar, which is as close as we could get to the North Pole. And so Spalbar is an island that is belongs to Norway, about 
600 miles from the Norwegian, most northern part of Norway. And we spent a couple of weeks there. And we used to go out in the snow on sleds, and they had um, these sleds were pulled by motorized vehicles. <coughs> we have uh, reindeer skins to. And it's strange how you're sitting on ice and snow, and reindeer skins are quite. It really insulate you from the cold. So that's that's why I went there, and uh, of course, visually, it, it's there's there's nothing to distract you. you know, there's hardly any color, just shades of gray or white, and. Uh, And just interesting when you're living in, in a, here in California, a very colorful place, or in England, you know, you've got all these these uh, distractions. But at the the uh, Svalbard, there wasn't just the whole feeling was of silent silence and peace. And a strange event, a strange thing was when we we stayed in a hotel in the, the town, the main town on Svalbard is called Longyearbyen, and uh, Richard made reservations at a at a Scandinavian hotel there. So when we went to this hotel, I was going being showed to my room in this hotel and I saw two chambermaids down the hallway and they were both ties. <laughs> so, you know, I never expected to see ties in such a cold place. <laughs> but there were about 40 ties working in Svalbard. And so they got together like ties do and came with Donna and provide food every day. And <laughs> So he had Thai food at the North Pole. <laughs> and there's a reason why I found out, you know, Norway has 50% taxes when you're living on the main land of Norway, a very highly taxed society, 50%. And so, uh, but on Svalbard, they, they don't have to pay taxes just to encourage people to go there. And at the end of the First World War, in the 1920s, Svalbard didn't belong to anybody, but there were like Britain was claiming it, and Sweden, and Norway, and Russia. So, there's a Russian community on the island, and uh, they had a League of Nations meeting in which they assigned Svalbard to Norway, and Thailand was part of that meeting. So Thais can go without a work permit to work and make very good wages as just chambermaids or masseurs or things like that. 
as Falma. That's why there were so many there because you know they could like time people go overseas to make money to send home to their parents, to their families in Thailand. So, and they always um, glad to see monks. They're totally surprised when I asked, said it, when I could speak Thai. You, you wrote a, a letter about nine years ago to the Sangha, uh, and you were talking about your relationship to death, and you had said that uh, you'd lost your fear of death, you were no longer afraid of it, and it only produced a feeling of curiosity and uh, an interest in understanding it as a as a large change in your in your life that you were actually looking forward to it and i was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about that in terms of uh how that changed for you or if it changed i'm assuming that um that perception or that uh, way of seeing death has changed over the years for you but i don't know and i was just wondering if you could speak about that yeah, well, especially at this time when my sister just died, and uh, she's the closest relative to me. So my parents died in 1988-1989, and then I've lived abroad for nearly 60 years. I haven't lived in the United States, so... I've lost contact with my sister's children and my and uh, so they they just and they don't seem to be interested in in much uh, kind of contact. But death is because we're all going to die and we take it so personally because you know you're so attached you're so identified with something that was born and so uh, you know the, the, the first three fetters Sakya Ditti Sila Bhattabharamasa I encourage you to really contemplate meditate on the ego the social cultural conditioning you've received and just uh, like the third fetter which Ikecha is like the Doubt, translated as doubt, which is always a result of thinking, attachment to thoughts. So, Lumpa uh, Chawas, when I asked him what the word for crazy is in, in Thai, said someone who thinks too much. <laughs> so I thought that was a pretty accurate kind of description. And, you know, I. Over the years, I've really encouraged monks and nuns to, to really contemplate these first three fetters. Because that, this, through this understanding of these three fetters, that you realize the path and its stream entry takes place. So, uh, 
until as long as these three fetters are, you know, if you're still attached in any way, even a subtle way to the ego or cultural, social, religious conditioning or thinking, uh, your thinking habits, you know, then you can imagine the path or, you know, you understand it on the intellectual level. But what is it as as reality? And and so you're caught in these three fetters. They're all artificial, very, you know, that's why you create this, the sakyaditi, the sense of a separate self as your reality. And so that, uh, in the, just in the, in the simple scriptures of suttas, you know, there's the ten fetters, but stream entry sort of on it is, is just breaking through the illusions of artificial conditioning. Like the rest are quite natural to the form, like sexual desire, anger, and all the rest are part of the experience of having a human body with senses that grows old, gets sick and dies. That's natural, that's not, that's just the way it is, you know, it's not about cultural conditioning, it's the way it is for everybody uh, in the world. And so, um, the first three fetters are what give this sense of special personality, uniqueness, loneliness, fear, and uh, and death is, you know, the, is even though it's natural, because of our thinking process, we create, we, we, we want to know what happens after death. How many times have you been asked, what, what happens when, what do Buddhists believe happens when you die? And so forth. And so this is a fairly common question. And then in Thailand, they talk a lot about rebirth, reincarnation, next life, and, uh, but the, the reality that I've found is that that death is you you, can, uh, you know it's just the body that passes away and the sense the senses you know so the eyes the ears the nose the tongue and then the body uh, just lose their ability to function in consciousness. And so their nature is to decay once the, they're, they're dead, the, the, the physical organs of the body can't operate anymore, can't function. Then the, then the body dies. But consciousness doesn't die. And so you, you know, then you, you begin to investigate it. If, if I'm attached, you know, I'm conditioned to attach to death, to the body, to the sense of uh, ego, separate self, to all the cultural conditioning, social, religious, generational conditioning, uh, you know, because you aren't, like I always emphasize, like a newborn baby, doesn't have an ego, you know, it doesn't, 
he doesn't have a language to think or remember. But it's a human form in consciousness. So then, then the, as I was talking about previously, uh, about the um, consciousness, sensory consciousness, which we strongly identify with. So in the five khandhas, rupa, waitana, sanya, sankara, vinyana, vinyana is consciousness, and that's impermanent. So uh, consciousness, but is is the body in its consciousness in the body, in the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body, or is the body and the senses in consciousness? This is a this is you know this is a good question to ask yourself. You know, because we tend to, you know, especially the Western cultural conditioning, very much based on consciousness in a body. So in the Fatkanda, that's referring to consciousness through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. But then does consciousness die? And... Uh, then you begin to contemplate consciousness as one of the six factors. Consciousness, emptiness, earth, fire, water, and air. And then you, you know, consciousness has no, no boundary. It's immeasurable, like space. So you have earth, fire, water, and air all bound, have forms, color, and quality. But uh, space has no form or color or quality other than spaciousness. And consciousness is what you are. You know, begin to break down the illusions of yourself and, and let, not that you get rid of them. That you you no longer believe in them anymore. You're you're liberating yourself from the limitations of the four elements in space. So what's left is is still awareness, and you've let go of everything. And you know, so in the second noble truth. That's about the three kinds of desire. After you reflected on those three kinds of desire in your mind, you know, that you're experiencing, not just analyze it or see it as personal, but know what it is. <clears throat> so then you, you have this insight into the second noble truth is letting go. So I've all of that for years, just letting go of everything. And uh, then you reach a place where there's no, nothing to let go of. There's just silence. And at first, you know, I refer to it as sound of silence, but it's not really a sound. At first I perceived it as a sound because I didn't know what it was. But it, it, you know, but it's 
in this stillness, when you're not distracted through the senses or through the thinking process, then you're, there's still conscious awareness that isn't bound by form. Because it has no boundary. And of course, scientists and psychologists, uh, you know, there's so much interest in consciousness these days. There's, you know, it's a very, it's a big mystery to science because they want to define something like that that is here and now that they really are, but they can't, they always think it's something they've got to, you know, have words to describe it. And you can't describe it. It's kind of, you can say it's knowing the present is like, this is the best you can do. So, awareness here and now, that is, uh, you know, then you, be, you begin to, uh, there's awareness whether your the thoughts are good or bad there's still consciousness whether you know you're feeling healthy or sickly you've got COVID you've got malaria or whatever there's still this silent beautiful silence that you can rest in abide in so it was just by exploring that, and like this is what Pavana, you know, Pali word Pavana really means, is uh, is uh, is this in investigation, Namavijaya. So the, uh, that's what I encourage people to do. Because uh, is Buddha, is this Theravada Buddhism? You know, it's is it? Does it really ask you to believe in anything? You know, what is what is belief? And that's what the belief is that you, that you believe you're a separate person, that you're a male or female, you believe that you're American or Thai or nationality, you believe your age, you are young or old, you know, you believe in in American democracy and freedom of speech and American constitution, you believe in God, you believe in, in uh, angels or you don't believe in it you believe there are no angels and you can believe there isn't any god so there's these controversies around whether god exists or doesn't exist between atheists and theists but it's all based on belief because believing there isn't any god is another belief because we don't know you know what do you mean what do you mean by god you know or and if you think, well, I don't believe in God, you still don't know what, you know, but it's just choosing not to believe what 
Christians say or even Buddhists say. So if you don't believe in anything, it's not that you're, you're, you're against believing, but you see the limitation of it, the suffering of believing in things. And that's why in this, this uh, I emphasize now all the time to trust in awareness. Because that's here and now, that's not a belief that I expect you to take on as a Buddhist monk. But it's a helpful suggestion to, to because it is the way out of suffering. When, you, when you're aware, when there's awareness as your refuge, you know, it becomes Dhamma, apparent here and now. Consciousness is apparent here and now. Because that's what you really are. So that doesn't die. And so the body dies and it's supposed to die. And that's its nature. But if you ask if I'm afraid of that, the, the personal sense of ownership of this body is, you know, it's functional. I still can respond to conventions and my role in the Sangha and so forth. But it's no longer attached to it because the realization of the deathless, consciousness deathless and Dhamma, who Dhamma now, before when I first started becoming interested in Theravada Buddhism, you take <clears throat> refuge in Dhamma and you it's generally translated as ultimate reality or ultimate truth, which are English words. But what is ultimate true? What is ultimately real? You know, so you imagine some kind of, it becomes very abstract. And uh, you don't really know what it means when you take refuge in Dhamma as a person. Is some kind of belief in ultimate reality or ultimate truth, but it's still, it's still, uh, you know, sila bhutta It's still convention. It's still the fetters is still operating. So, so as long as they, as long as those fetters aren't seen for what they are, and you, and you still looking for Nibbana as some atta personal attainment or enlightenment or three-mentry as some kind of personal attainment, you, you know, you never, you, you can't find it that way. It doesn't, it doesn't have a form. It's not a sankhara. So then, if, you know, if you can take Buddhism can sound like nihilism or annihilationism because it, but it, one of the quotes from the Pali scriptures I like to use when I give my master give desanas is Apaduta desang amatasa taura ye sodamanta bamunjantu satang and it's an announcement, pronouncement when Buddha was enlightened the gate to the deathless is open. Trust in this. 
So, you know, it's a statement. So what's the deathless? And uh, then you investigate, death is a perception. You know, the word itself is, is a creation by human beings. And uh, then we identify so strongly with the form, the body, that it, when it, you know, the, then we, what's going to happen to me when I die? And uh, and the reality is when nobody knows, there's no real me to die. There's just a body dying. So through this inquiry and investigation, you you begin to let go of these conventional identities because they're all false and unreal. Then in the Buddha describe them as soap bubbles or foam on the sea. They have no no ultimate reality in themselves. And like the view of a soul or, uh, you know, some kind of personal soul quality is, is an illusion. Might be a comforting one, but it's based on belief. So, and then you think, well, in Christianity, you're, if you're a good Christian, you go to heaven, and that's very comforting, you know. But then you might go to hell forever. So there's heaven and hell, and these are words created by human beings, and they have their counterparts in every language, you know. So in Thai, you've got the one Naroke, and so forth. You know, it's the best that ignorant people can use to explain the mysteries of life, such as what happens after death. And so, you know, they, you know, you can really manipulate people by saying, if you, you don't keep the precepts and you commit crimes and you go to hell for eternity and, and if you're a good boy and, and obey God, you'll go to heaven. And then uh, you're conditioned to think that there isn't any God, there isn't any hell, and it's all just uh, propaganda, fake news. And uh, so then you, <laughs> what is, what, you know, what, it, it's just words, you know. To me now, those are just words that use on conventional explanations that people use who don't know, who have not seen, not really understood and abide in the deathless. So this gate to the deathless, door to the deathless, I always found that inspiring because I thought, you know, I found that on a personal level, you know, the the uh, you know I was a agnostic really or a skeptic and uh, and then I found just getting educated and you know living in California Berkeley and that you had all this this kind of nineteen 60s freedom, you know, the, the hippie time, and, and uh, 
hippie movement was forming in Ashbury Street, San Francisco. And, and I lived in San Francisco during the beatnik period in the 50s. And it's all interesting, kind of exciting to just uh, kind of thumb your nose at conventional American white white man's conventional conditioning, you know, Anglo-Saxon white Protestant conditioning. So, you know, so the beatniks were like deliberately acting, you know, in, in ways that were shocking and unacceptable by white middle-class Americans in the 1950s. So in some ways, you know, just rebelling against white Anglo-Saxon Protestant values is kind of fun when you're young, but, it, you know, it doesn't go deep and it doesn't last and it doesn't, you know, there's a lot of suffering involved in it. So, so you know, the whole idea of just follow your heart and experiment life and life is a banquet and just enjoy eating wonderful food for your whole life because you can't really do that. Because life is about old age, sickness and death. And, uh, you know, that's the way it is for everybody. And you can't, you know, in Berkeley, I remember in, in the 60s, early 60s, uh, you see old hippies in bars and that, you know, in their 50s and <laughs> 60s, just trying to, to act that role and it looked ridiculous. You know, kind of pathetic to see, you know, middle-aged older men trying to just be a rebel for the rest of their lives. So then they, the, uh, you know, interest in Buddhism, and I had for a long time, because that was one of the good things of the beatnik period, was there was this interest in Zen Buddhism. So death now is just a perception at this very moment. What is it to me? Personally, it's a perception that I'm conditioned to have. But my refuge is in Dhamma, which is deathless. So what's there to be afraid of? And then when you get my age, you know, you kind of, uh, you know, the body is no longer a very uh, pleasant condition to live in. So, you know, on well, my birthday, you know, Thai people always say, please live to 120. And I, and I know they mean well by that, but I can't imagine anything worse. Because <laughs> <laughs> at 88, it's, it's, you know, like I can, I, you're still fuzzy. My vision is happy. Going a few days to Santa Rosa to get a, uh, giving injections in the eye to kind of preserve what vision I have. 
But I'm just thankful that I have, I can see what I, I do, you know, so it's, when it's not personal, then it's, there's no suffering in it. Did you miss it? Yeah, I was, uh, you mentioned like people treating life as a banquet and eating all the... Could you speak up? I'm terrible. People uh, treating life as a banquet and trying to eat all the good food, like the, the mundane happiness and then the uh, super mundane happiness. Um, can you speak a little on some of the tools you used to break away from that conditioning of seeking the mundane happiness? Just be the witness of them. It's not trying, this is oftentimes a problem for, for Western and Thai monks, really, because we want to get rid of greed, you know, and you become a celibate monk. And uh, so then, you know, there's a strong desire to get rid of sexual desire, and uh, and like in you know when I first ordained, I was 31 years old, and the idea you know of just eating very little, I'd go on fasts all the time, and uh, the ascetic life of very Spartan lifestyle in Thailand, and uh, so you know, I, but it was all done with the idea that I've got to get rid of greed for good food or sexual desire or or anger. You know, I thought you know, kill your defilements, kakile in Thai, kill, get rid of. They use this very strong language like kill kile, the kilesis. And, uh, you know, that's how I was brought up to kill kilesis. As a Christian, you know, I was trying to suppress anger and sexual desire and things like that. So, you you, you know, this uh, part of the American Christian conditioning that I received. And then, uh, and in Thailand, they kept you know, so talking about kill the decalases. But Lumpo Chan never really talked like that. You know, it's the understanding kilesis, understanding anger, understanding greed. And that isn't like getting rid of it or destroying it, but understanding it, you begin to see it for what it is. It's a sankara. Greed is a sankhara, anger is a sankhara, mental confusion, doubt and worry are sankharas. They're all empty phenomena that, that when you begin to trust in your awareness, then your wisdom operates. Universal wisdom is a way, you know, through sorting it out and, and letting go of these because these are all part of being human. Human, you know, the human forms. What are they? They're born. They have to eat. They have to eat food for the body to survive. So, hunger for food. Is that a kilesa or is that just natural? Part of the result of being born in a in a material form, material form, 
or sexual desire. What is that? You know, and these are sexual forms. They're for procreating the species. You know, so they're, you know, this sexual, sexuality is, is part of nature. And um, then when we think a lot, we get confused. And because, as uh, Pampachado was saying, that a crazy person is one who thinks too much. And we, we drive ourselves mad with our doubts and worries and fears just through thinking. And so, you know, like, seeing through thinking, I, you know, began to realize non-thinking, which is silent. And so, uh, then I, you know, then this was the path. This was the path that you can trust. The silence of conscious awareness. And if you're always trying to get rid of things, like get rid of anger, or greed, or anything like that, then you, you know, you're, you're caught in always resistance and suppression, and and then with being celibate, there's guilt about it. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you can idolize bhikkhu life as, as uh, you know, you, a good bhikkhu is just full of loving kindness and compassion. You know, so, so then one can feel inadequate because you don't feel loving kindness for everybody. <laughs> And so this is why, you know, the ego is a very vicious condition. It's always guilt-ridden and, and ranting about how you should, what you should be and what you shouldn't be. And, and uh, they call it the inner monster because, it, you know, it, it says anything. Thinking mind, you can think anything. Where in the silence of pure conscious awareness, there's no thought there, it's pure. So as long as you're attached to conditions, all conditions are impermanent and unsatisfying. You know, so you can idolize purity and try to become pure as a person, you can't do it. Unless you fool yourself. You believe you're the purest person in the world. That's the real ego. and uh, Or you're more pure than somebody else. And just fooling yourself. That's, and if you grasp those kind of perceptions, you become arrogant and... and, uh, and you know, you look down on others who don't seem as pure as you are, where with your natural state is purity. So it's learning to to realize your natural, what's natural, tamachat or dhamma, here and now. So like in trying to attain stream entry from the ego level, you can't do it. And that's why this 
investigation, this Dhamma Vichaya is so important. Sati, Sati, Dhamma Vichaya, the first two factors of enlightenment. So it's a, it's a real, like this life that you're leading, there's a real opportunity to investigate for yourself. Not just try to find out what others say or teachers say, but you know, you're given the right to use this, these, these conditions, these traditions, Dhamma Vinaya, to investigate conscious awareness, with conscious awareness into the conditioning that you identify with. So it's, you know, rather than trying to become a, a stream enderer, or to attain some kind of ideal purity, you know, these are perceptions that you create, they're ideas, and what you find out is you're originally pure, <laughs> anyway. There's nothing to find, it's just letting go of what the delusions that you've been conditioned by, by those first three fetters. Thank you. So when, when Lumpur Cha would uh, point out people's, like, uh, or maybe not point out people's faults, but uh, I've heard you mention before that it was difficult to live with Lumpur Cha in the beginning, that you developed resentment toward, toward Lumpur Cha at times, but that it was ultimately beneficial. And uh, how, to, how did he actually do that? Well, he was a very, you know, I felt really, uh, as a little child, for the first time in my life, by an adult male, I felt totally accepted. And so even with my parents, I felt that, you know, there's always conditions about how, we, you know, they, in terms of love and things like that. But in, uh, when I was married, and that was very conditional. So, so they, uh, time was like, suddenly I felt this great kind of freedom. And so, uh, and even though you're living in a very strict Vinaya monastery, you know, the anger and resentment that I had, or anger towards Lumpachal was just obviously just my ego. Because I had, you know, he, he would, uh, like sitting papia, you know, with one leg on one side. You know, Americans don't ever sit like that. And so you, and he'd give like five hour, six hour days in us in the evening. And so, you know, I thought, well, this isn't fair. I don't understand the language. I have to sit there in this painful posture for five hours. And I don't understand what's going on. I just feel pissed off. <laughs> so so I, I went to Lumpacha and I pleaded with him to, when he was giving a talk, if I could go back to my cooper. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it seemed reasonable. <laughs> to me, it was very reasonable. He said, no, you have to stay. <laughs> and, 
And I thought, you're, you're not fair, you know, you don't understand. <laughs> but, you know, there was a point to, you know, what he was doing for me was helping me. Because during that time, I really saw so much how I'd create uh, aversion just because I was in pain or bored. Or I, my critical mind would start operating. I don't agree with this. This is just superstition. And then would grumble. And, and I'd listen to this because he was always pointing out to, to pay attention to what you're feeling. And so I really, you know, I started developing that because there's a way to survive. And in that situation, otherwise I, I would have left. But, uh, you know, then you have, you have insight, you realize this, which is aware of, of anger and restlessness and boredom and, and exasperation and feeling offended, feeling misunderstood. You know, they're all, you begin to observe them as a witness, as a puto, as a witness of them. And then they cease. So it's a way to for condition to let can let go of condition phenomena without suppressing it. Is under this what I call understanding it by letting it be what it is. So one, I remember a big insight I had during that time was I I was having to sit through one of these long desanas and I. Was, Really, I, I'm fed up. Absolutely fed up. I can't take any more of this. And I listened to this thing, this voice inside that said, I'm fed up. And I realized I wasn't fed up. <laughs> that awareness doesn't get fed up. Suddenly, this whole sense of, I can't stand any more of this. But I could. I'm doing it. <laughs> so it was like a real insight. In, 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 I think, I believe, much I really see that this was good practice for me. Because it's also a way to, to uh, be part of the Sangha and, and listen to the language. And you pick up all kinds of words, and, you know, and so you ask uh, time up what this particular word means that you hear over and over again. And one of the one of the Thai words I kept hearing Lumpur Cha talk about is Yutman Turman, Yutman Turman, and that's clinging. And so, you know, I didn't, couldn't understand the meaning of it, and so I asked uh, another monk about it. He said, it, "Like letting go, Bloy one." And so, uh, because clinging, so the insight is to let go. Uh, you know, I look back at that time, but I feel nothing but gratitude <laughs> because you know it's a. And really, I saw it as 
here I'm living in, in uh, Northeast Thailand where I don't know anybody and the, and the Thai people are so eager for me to get enlightened. You know, they bring food every day. They, you know, they, they got all this support for enlightenment that I don't have, never had before in my life. You know, then you think in Thailand, you got a nation of Buddhists who I assume all want me to become enlightened because they're very fascinated the fact that this American would ordain in a monastery like Wat Pong because it was, it was in 1967 when I went in the Vietnam War it was at its height and there was a huge Air Force base in Ubo. They built the airfield, that international airfield in Ubo was built by the Americans. And, and there were all these airmen, American airmen, zooming around on motorcycles and they had nightclubs, whorehouses, everything. It was just rampant kind of Americans are, you know, just into the sensuality. And then Elvis Presley movies were very popular in Thailand. So they had this idea that that uh, Americans just lived such a happy life, you know, dancing on the street, singing. <laughs> <laughs> And why, why would you want to live in one of them? So, you know, there was a lot of interest. I mean, I was a, the first Western monk there. So I was a, I'm fine. Outside my cootie, a village is standing outside waiting for me to appear. <laughs> Object of intense curiosity. I'm wondering, are there any certain uh, habits, practices, or standards that you had over your monastic life that you found was most helpful for developing? Yeah, well, like, Anapanasati is good in the beginning because it calms the thinking mind. And so like some of the practices are helpful in the beginning, give you something to grasp and, and, and you kind of, you're still sending your attention to outward, to an object such as the breath or to a casino or whatever. But then a real in Vipassana and an insight meditation, you have to investigate the Four Noble Truths. And so you, you then the first Noble Truth is suffering, Dukkha, so you have to understand that. And then the intellect says, well, I know what Dukkha is, I suffer enough. But then you you get the impression because there's three aspects to each truth. And uh, the second aspect, there's suffering, uh, understanding, 
and then the result of understanding. And understanding is observing suffering, wanting to get something you don't have, wanting to, you know, even when you're doing samatha meditation, there's a lot of, I want to get jhana, I want to get still, I want peace and, and bliss. You know, you think of bliss as a desirable, I mean, to be in a very peaceful, blissful state is, is a very desirable uh, idea. But, you know, so as a person, you know, you seeing yourself always through the Sakya Diti, the personality. When you're actually observing your own doubt or guilt or worry, what is it that's aware of doubt? And I found, you know, like my personality was, I don't like as a person to feel confused. You know, so I was brought up to try to get answers to every question, solutions to every problem. And uh, then in the training at Watmapong, I found it so confusing because I didn't understand the language and, uh, you know, different culture, totally different culture than what I was used to. And uh, I didn't know what was happening half the time, what they were talking about or what to do next. And, and I was always being told how to behave and corrected by other monks and I felt resentful towards that. You know, just being told how to walk or sit or behave, and because I, you know, the ego doesn't like that. Likes to, you know, I was older than most of the monks at thirty-one, and they were all farm boys with fourth-grade education. I was well educated, and so these perceptions would come up. And uh, so I, uh, you know, just started observing them through this is to know the, to be the witness. So I recommend trusting your ability to just be the witness, not somebody witnessing Dhamma, but just witnessing it like this. So, so suffering, like being here, Abhayagiri, the kind of problems that arise in your mind, living in community life, in the Vinaya, and the, and the weather changes, and and so forth, to to use it, as, to be witnesses like this, whatever you're feeling, you can't, you can't help the way you feel. None of us can. Feeling is so personal, and... Uh, you may want to feel loving-kindness towards everybody, but but how do you really feel at this moment? You know, so then you're, that's Bhutto witnessing the way it is, as Dhamma. All conditions are impermanent. So I also encourage people to not believe what they're thinking. 
You know, to observe thinking as an object rather than try to think about not thinking. So, uh, you know, and I found, you know, people really suffer by believing their own thoughts all the time. And uh, so, you know, because we have critical minds. And when, when you look at the ability to think, language, like the English language, you know, it's based on, on dualistic perceptions of right and wrong, heaven and hell, good and bad. So it's a critical function that, you know, in your education, your cultural conditioning is, is that's reinforced, you know, to develop reason and logic and the thinking ability to think. And, uh, you know, but feeling, emotion, isn't reasonable or logical. You know, you can idealize, you'd like to have loving kindness for all sentient beings as an emotion. That's an ideal. And ideals don't have emotions. So it's very high, very good, very beautiful. But what are you feeling right now, at this very moment? Only you know. It's like this. It's not about judging that it's, you feel good or bad or whatever, but whatever emotion, mental state you're experiencing when I'm talking to you like this, is like this. So that's witnessing. It's not critical. It's not telling anything. So it's not nagging you or, or begging you to feel inspired and believe what I'm saying. That's the thinking mind. But it's, it is the way it is, whether it's uh, what I say confuses you or inspires you or uh, makes you feel critical and averse, it's like this. Because you can't help, you know, feeling, these, this is a feeling realm. These are feeling forms, they're all about emotion. And, and so, you know, so the weather, you know, when you observe that, uh, the weather changes, or day or night, you feel differently. When you're with people you enjoy and love and like, it's like this. When you're with people you don't like, it's like this. And, and so you can't like people you don't like as just some kind of willful uh, idea. But disliking is like this. So everything that you feel, you're the witness of, and you're, therefore you're not the feeling. You're not bound by that feeling or the critic of it. You're not criticizing yourself for feeling averse to somebody you know you should love. But it's, uh, you know, the, the feeling of aversion arises, it's, it's like this. So you learn the way of insight, insight into the way things are, all conditions are impermanent. So it's uh, like these metta practices, you know, like the may I abide in well-being and so forth. And 
And being a skeptic and a cynic, you know, I used to, when I, I hung Sakito homie when it was in Pali, you know, I just memorized it and went through it. I didn't quite understand the word, but when I translated into English, you know, I, uh, my cynical mind was, may I abide in well-being, and I, oh God, I don't like that. Because it seems so uh, kind of, you know, I felt negative towards just may I abide in well-being. Uh, may all beings be liberated from suffering. I could kind of go along with that. And then I noticed that uh, it was easy to spread metta to seven billion Chinese in China, who I don't know, than the irritating monk sitting next to me. So I could spread loving kindness to seven billion Chinese, but someone sitting next to me, I was just feel irritated. So, they, uh, you know, I began to, you know, some people love metta practices because they're, they're, they're very inspiring. But what is metta? You know, loving kindness. And it's, it's, uh, it's your true nature. It's dhamma. It's natural. It's not some kind of ideal condition that you generously spread around the world like it might sound. But in you know, in, we're we're all in the same consciousness. Seven billion Chinese, the monk that's irritating you, the consciousness, me, you. It's the same consciousness. So you begin to to see consciousness has no boundary, and we're all all of the in consciousness. So then there's a sense of, of loving kindness that's quite natural through conscious awareness rather than just intellectual idealism. So and then you begin to, because one of the questions in Thailand, they never talk about you know, like the word love. And then in the West, you know, love in, in Thai translation it tends to be about loving this or loving somebody. But then in Christianity, mystical Christianity, you've got an unconditioned love, which is not personal. And then metta is unconditioned love. And consciousness, when you, when it really begins to you begin to realize this for yourself, then metta for all sentient beings is natural. You know, it's not a kind of ideal creation of through thinking. And then the sense of, of you know, a feeling of, of uh, loving kindness 
towards Every, creation itself. And then you realize, you know, in the in the Nibbana Sutta, the first stanza of the Nibbana Sutta is uh, is this kind of heart sutra of Mahayana. And uh, so it's, and that makes no sense intellectually. It's completely nonsense. It's complete nonsense. If you try to figure it out uh, just through a Western intellectual mindset. But when you begin to have insight, then the, this this first, there's four stanzas in the Nibbana Sutta. The first one is, is something like the Heart Sutra. And uh, I remember when I was in the Peace Corps, I was sent away to London for these books uh, all on Zen Buddhism and they talked and they chant the Heart Sutra. And uh, so I read the Heart Sutra and I just, <laughs> this is, you know, it doesn't make any sense at all. I don't, I don't understand it. And the sun, moon and stars are in consciousness. And all space is in consciousness. Now, just on your Western intellectual conditioning, you can't imagine that. You know, the sun and moon seem so far away, and the stars and the whole universe and galaxies, and and uh, who knows where's the end of the universe and space. But in, in the Buddhist scriptures, space is one of the immeasurable, you can't measure it. It has no form, but it's here and now. So you can perceive space, like you would just, I can see space right now. It's, there'd be no ability to see any of you if there is no space. We couldn't exist without space. Forms can't possibly manifest by themselves, without space. So the forms, these bodies depend on space for manifesting, and what manifests dies, changes. So, you know, that. then the consciousness, which you can't find, you can't perceive, because that's the perceiving ability. So it's like trying to see your own eyes. You can't look at your own eyes. I mean, you look in a mirror, and then that's a reflection of your eyes, but a direct experience of seeing your own eyes is impossible. You can't find yourself as an object, because any object is a creation. And so personality is just a, a creation. But what's left if there's no personality? And can space possibly manifest if there is no consciousness? You know, so in the sequence, you've got consciousness, space, they're immeasurable in the forms, Anicca, Dukkanata, 
Earth, fire, water, and air. So explore that. Like these bodies are all about earth, fire, water, and air. Their forms in space. They come and go in space. You know, they can things arise and cease, manifest and demanifest. And without space, there could be no forms. So earth, fire, water, and air come into space and it gives a possibility for manifestation. But space and the four elements are in consciousness. So that always brings you back to the here and now. Because right now, you know, Santipiko, Akarika, Ehi Pasco, Opanayaka, Banjitan, Vaitira, Vivanu, we take refuge in Dhamma, here and now, apparent here and now, consciousness is apparent for all of us. But we don't notice it because we're always trying to find it or define it. So the puto, the witness, is merely a, a word or a technique to point to the reality of here and now. It's like this. Mm-hmm. You know, when these words is like this, notice it's still a word, but it's non-judgmental. It's not, there's no judgment in it. It's not about good or bad, right or wrong. And this especially applies to your emotional habits, you know, because the thinking mind is critical. You know, if you have, a, if you critical of yourself, it's because of emotions. You feel fear, and if you're a real man, you're not afraid, and <clears throat> you have prob- personal problems or doubts or obsessions that arise and cease and you want to get rid of them but uh, and then the critical mind you know logically it's good to get rid of the anger and greed and and be a normal person just you know be a healthy normal person but what is that you know, when we talk about in, in American English about a normal person, I've often wondered what what that really is. What is a normal person? One who kind of fits in, doesn't into the American dream, and uh, doesn't have extreme emotional problems. Just kind of goes along with life. Is that normal? Or, and and uh, you know that you're you're still thinking about normal a normal human being as something you know something that you're not because emotions what's normal about emotions they can change according to other conditions you know so if somebody starts abusing you you know you're going to feel angry Anger will arise because the conditions for anger are there. It's natural to feel when you when somebody's insulting or physically abusing you. It's like this. 
you feel angry. And anger is like this. But that which is aware of anger is not angry. And that was a real insight for me. It was, I can feel angry as a person, but who told the awareness, the witness of anger isn't angry? So where do I take my refuge? In my habit of getting angry because somebody said something I didn't like? Or in awareness of it? Then there's no suffering. So you learn, you know, from being criticized, being blamed. Even though none of us want to be criticized or blamed for things. You know, so we like to always get along and be friends and get praise and be appreciated. Uh, you know, it's a desirable state, and being vilified and rejected is nobody wants that. So, these are, you know, these are the personality. You know, it's like that. It's very conditioned and dependent on other conditions. But what isn't conditioned is conscious awareness. That's why it's a refuge. So, for me now, the Refuge in Dhamma is something real. It's no longer just ceremonial chanting or, you know, believing in some something called Dhamma. You realize Dhamma. You know the knowing, direct knowing of Dhamma here and now is like this. It's silent, it's peaceful, it's not critical. And it's not personal, it's anatta. So it's, it, it's all there and, it, you know, like, I, this is my own personal experience. <laughs> that I've particularly taken the Four Noble Truths to heart as a Samanera and as a bhikkhu. And then Anjan Chah was, to me, was the ideal teacher because he was always referring to the Four Noble Truths in his, when I began to understand Thai and so forth, I really appreciated his insights into how to use these truths for investigating. And investigating is is like it's, it's an encouragement. You're not told what to believe, or you know, in Vinaya you've got rules about behavior and speech, just to get along with it as a group. You know, if we if we didn't have Vinaya to hold us together, we wouldn't be able to live with each other for very long. And because uh, we like hippie communes in the in the sixties. They're based on ideas of freedom, personal freedom, and do what you want. But living like that is a, in, a, in a community is really frustrating. I visited a hippie community in England, and uh, you know, they had they rented a beautiful, stately house in Kent. And uh, 
They invited me. Some of the members of this hippie community were ex-monks that I knew. And so uh, they invited me for a meal. So I went to this kind of beautiful home in the countryside, and there were all these hippies, you know, practicing meditation. The meditation room was was a real mess. They didn't believe in Buddha images. They thought Buddha never had any images, and we're not going to have Buddha images. So there was no focus in the meditation room, and uh, and no kind of order or anything. The blankets, people, hippies with blankets around, they're all in piles on the floor, and and one of the women who I knew was really bitter about having to wash the dishes because nobody else bothered. Then it was about free love. And so there were pregnancies. <laughs> and within a year or so, the whole thing collapsed. Because it was just impossible to live like that. You know, the idea they were all idealistic young people with good intentions but no wisdom you know so this uh, where in this you know even in Wapapong just uh, you know how did how did I manage to get along with with the monks and the lady when I didn't understand half the time what's going on is Due to the to the Vinaya, really, which holds the community together. So, like when you're ordained, you're you're given the right to keep, to live under this discipline, not a, to take it so personally, but to you know to be able to use it to uh, uh, action and speech, because that's all the Vinaya is about. It's not about emotions or thoughts. So there's no abati or that with the thinking, bad thoughts. Because sometimes, we, you know, we can't help but think bad thoughts. <laughs> Our emotions, anger and fear, jealousy, and that arise. And it's like this. So in this way, all the con- conditions are teaching us, you know, what with, this is where wisdom operates. Universal wisdom, not personal knowledge. And it's very well contained in this Sape Sankarani Cha, all conditions are impermanent. Sape Tamanata, all Dhamma is is non-personal, not a self. So the first fetter is 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 the biggest obstacle we have, the ego. And so rather than trying to get rid of your ego, you understand that it is is an artifice. It's not reality. You aren't a, what you think you are or believe you are. And, you know, that's not what you really are. So, you know, whatever you think of yourself, 
is a creation of the mind. Habit, it's habit. You know, you acquire a sense, you know, when you're born, you know, then you're told you're a boy, you're American, you're either a good boy or a bad boy, or you're loved or you're a nuisance. You know, so you 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 acquire a sense of a separate self through you're not born with it, but it comes through the family, you know, the mother, the father. And that's all artificial, because it's not what you really are. So, you know, I found it such a relief to realize I'm not what I'm thinking. So, you know, that's the thoughts, you know, still come. I can still have personal thoughts, egotistical thoughts, but I, I don't believe in them anymore. They don't, they seem empty and useless. Or could you uh, maybe talk about a little bit of your experiences with Lumpur Liam in the early days and some, I don't know, maybe some uh, stories with him or he was he was kind of just a little bit senior to you so he would have taken you under his, his wing a bit at Wakapong and is there any... any yeah, he came. I first went to stay at Wakapong in 1967. And I was the 22nd monk of that Pansa. And Ajahn Chah was, was getting well known in Ubon, but not like in Bangkok. I never, nobody ever mentioned him. So it was, uh, and the monastery was very basic. Now what my poem is, has electricity and tap water, <laughs> but then it just well. Every afternoon we had to draw water from the well in bucket in kerosene tins, and uh, there's no electricity, no mosquito netting. Just we had individual mosquito nets, but no screens on the windows. So it was, the food was pretty coarse. You're getting mostly village food. And uh, I was the, at the end of the line. And then uh, the following year, there were about 40 months. And several years later, Ajahnium came. So I forget how many. The first few Ponsas, I didn't, he wasn't there. Oh, he wasn't there yet. And Ajahn Maharamon, you know him? Yes. He came later. And he was a, he was a Pali scholar, very respected in Ubon, a Pali language teacher. And, you know, that's very high, high position in Thai society. So, 
there was um, quite something for a Polish scholar to come and become a disciple of Ajahn Chah, because all the other monks were just farm boys. You know, they had fourth, fourth grade education. And so Mahamon was the first kind of exceptional. And then Maha Sumpong came. He was a Maha, you know, a Pali scholar. And then Ajahn Niam, he had about nine pansas when he came. And uh, you know, he was he's rather dark skinned and uh, slight and I noticed some of the monks dismissing him. <laughs> but when he would give talks, Dharma talks, by that time I could understand the language. They were really profound. And I noticed Lumpo always liked to get Ajahn Liam to give talks. So on these all-night sitting on one pra, you know, I really like to listen to Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Niam because I found their teaching so helpful to me personally. But Lumpo Liam doesn't, he doesn't, where Ajahn Chah was very much uh, outgoing, you know, as soon as you came into society, he'd kind of embrace you. He'd, he'd look at you and and smile and talk to you and and Lumpur Liam just would <laughs> say, Good morning, Ajahn Liam. <laughs> yeah, he still does that. He's not very outgoing, but he's very wise, and uh, his dhamma is is really from insight. You know, he's not a scholar, so he he kind of like contrast to Nupachar, the bullying kind of wide open, loving kindness Sanjan. Mumpal is more Upeka than Metta. <laughs> and then Lumpur Chah obviously realized that he, he Lumpur Liam already had taken meditation retreats in Bangkok. There was a monastery in Bangkok that taught meditation. And he had, he lived at that monastery. And so, you know, I felt right from the beginning he already had insight. So I felt very attracted to him right from the first time I met him. And then one time we went to Dong together. And uh, he's really tough, you know, physically. And I've got very big feet and the Thai sandals those thong sandals <laughs> I could never get a pair long enough you know so my heels would hang off the back of the 
they give me Thai thigh sandals. And so going to them with these sandals and following the Bhavim, you know, he was unstoppable, but I was I had a hard time keeping up. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we spent a night in a forest down in Upper Dead Udom, a really creepy forest. It was really cold, cold season. And there was no shelter, and these cold winds were blowing all over the place. And, and uh, I remember curling up in uh, under my, you know, it's too windy to even put up your umbrella, your growth. So you just sat under a tree and put on your sangati and everything and got through the night. <laughs> and uh, we went, I don't know how, I can't remember how many days in Northeast Thailand, went to his home village. And uh, there it was, I realized what a humble background he had. It was then uh, one time. Another experience I had with Lumpaliam was we had uh, there was a man, well-intentioned army officer like a colonel, had this grand view, grand vision of Ubon borders on Cambodia and Laos. So there's a point in Ubon that where Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand all come together. And this army officer wanted to build Buddha Rupas, have Buddha Rupas established, one facing Thailand in the peace gesture, one facing Cambodia, and the other towards Laos. And so he came to Ajahn Chah and wanted him to support this. So Lung Ho Cha sent Lung Ho Lim and myself in an army helicopter to this area. <laughs> <laughs> and we landed in some remote place on the very borders of Laos and Cambodia. I spent the night in a, I don't think anything ever came of it. It's just I never heard anything afterward. It was one of these idea, brilliant ideas. So I always felt, you know, it was kind of respect for Lumpoliam. And when Lumpacha became ill, then uh, Lumpoliam took over the abbotship of Wampapo. And uh, A lot of monks left, and there were, a lot of monks didn't didn't you know felt jealous or didn't like Lumpaliam. He was people were complaining about him. Later, people would come to me and say he's you know I was in England at the time, but I go back to time and they say you know he's Wampapong is is a ghost town. 
you've got to do something about it. And uh, I was still alive. And one year when I returned to Thailand, I went to Silang Parchaya, this special kuti separate from the main monastery. So I went and paid respect to him. And then I went into the main monastery to his old kuti, where, you know, brings back any memories. They had this this image, lifelike image of Lung Pao Cha sitting on a bamboo seat with his cane, he had this cane and like this. And I sat there and meditated in front of this image. And I thought, I like this image better than the reality of it. <laughs> because because <laughs> when I go see him, you know, he kind of you know, you could tell he knew what was going on, but he couldn't respond at all. And, you know, personally, I didn't want Lumpur Cha to be like that. I wanted, wanted him to be like his old self, like the lifelike figure under his kuti. And just watching that in my mind, just seeing how, you know, how the mind creates these, these kind of biases or impressions. And then I walked around Wapapong and it was all dusty and hardly any monks were living there. And it had a sense of it being a ghost town, a monastery where uh, nobody wanted to be. And so, you know, I felt very sad. And the following year, I came back the following year and it was bright and clean and monks were began to discover Lung Pao Liam as their teacher. So the monks that kind of rejected Liam left. And then the monks that came that year the between the sad year where the ghost town existed by the in a year's time it was you know, it was being rebuilt and clean paths and a lot of disciples of Ajahn Liam were there. They were there because of him. Because he, he endured through all that, through the criticisms, the, the loss of monks, the Lumpur Cha's illness, which lasted 10 years. You know, he just really surviving, learning always from, from the experiences that he has to have is, in that position he's in. So you can't feel nothing but respect for somebody like that. That even when he was being criticized by senior monks, by lay people, that to this day there's still monks criticizing Lumpolia. And, and he, he doesn't criticize anybody. 